Behind the Podcast, about Scott Ely and evolving a philosophy of life. I'm Scott Ely. Welcome to episode EF15, which is the very first Ask Me Anything episode, which is exactly as it sounds. These are listener-submitted questions, mostly via the Evolve Faster website, evolvefaster.com forward slash discuss, as opposed to the last episode, EF14, which was a BTP episode themed around what it takes, what makes the Evolve Faster podcast tick, and how it's created. This one was to corral in all the questions about me to rip the Band-Aid off all at once, so to speak, because I'm not a big fan of talking about myself. I thought I'd just do this all at once. So if I'm decided if I'm going to do it, let's really do it, and I'll offer up details about everything from psychedelic jungle experiences to what I've learned from traveling to 75 countries to what it's meant to have a kid late in life to why I think about death just about every day. So perhaps this will be an audience weed out episode with all that depressing stuff. We'll see. The question I'd like you to ponder as we go through this episode is the same one I'll be trying to figure out for myself as we go through this particular AMA. And that is, what's the most important thing you've learned through all the key experiences of your life? And how, do you, how often do you reflect on those lessons towards improving how you live? So even, even if you're like me and don't prefer talking or revealing a lot about yourself, I do think this kind of self-reflective exercise is very important towards living an examined life. So please keep those two questions in mind. But first off, FYI, there will be some light spoilers here about episodes in the podcast. If this is your first Evolve Faster podcast episode, welcome. The show is broken into seasons, which are about a dozen or so semi-serial episodes, each of which are a fiction meets nonfiction story with plot twists and turns about speculative, but mostly real topics and cautionary tales about them. By spoilers, I'm referring to me answering a listener question which uncovers an important plot reveal in one of those episodes. I'll try to announce when that's coming, but this is my general announcement. If I, if I say something about an episode that reveals something, sorry. <laughs> but uh, I'll do my best not to. I'm making a rule for myself to try to never give major spoilers. I'm listening to these with notes and somewhat off the cuff, so I don't know for sure when I might reveal something or I may say something stupid. This is the second of three general episodes about why the podcast exists. That would be EF 14, 15, and then we'll do one more next week, 16. I'm going to run through as many of these submitted AMA questions as I can. What is the about page talking about? What's your background? Why should I care about philosophy and psychology? They seem impractical. Are you a philosopher? What are you an expert in exactly? Um, what experience most shaped you? Why do you do this? How'd you develop this idea? How and why the nonfiction format? Were there aha moments in creating this that got it to where it is? What are your favorite books, movies, content? Do you love, hate about the podcast? What's the hardest part? I'll do my best to maybe talk a little faster and keep it as succinct as I can. 
So I'll get started with a question that's referring to an audio recording I added to the About page a while back. And you can give that a listen after this AMA if interested. I'll put a link to it. What is the About page talking about? So if you listen to the last episode, the Behind the Podcast episode EF14, then you'll already know that this is referring to a pretty powerful ayahuasca experience I had in the South American rainforest in 2015. And either way, I think most people probably knew that I was talking about ayahuasca. I was just having a little fun with it and writing about it in that kind of third-person way about myself, trying to make it like a fictional observation um, of what I got out of that experience, which hopefully made it more engaging, um, but in some ways might have obscured the event a little too much for people not familiar with ayahuasca. Quickly, what is ayahuasca? If you are not familiar, you've probably heard of it now. It's become much more popular in the last couple years. And it is a mostly in Central and South America coming of age medicinal experience. And this has been used for, for centuries in native tribes to, to mostly areas of the Amazon. And I did it in, in Ecuador. Most people do it in Peru. Uh, you can also do it in Brazil. All those countries touch uh, large swaths of the of the Amazon rainforest. And there are different tribes and different shaman, different techniques. In Ecuador, where I did it, it's actually legal if it's done by a, I think it's a registered shaman. It is a psychedelic. It's similar in some ways to the likes of magic mushrooms or LSD, but it, each of these drugs has their own, and I, I say drugs, but these these are medicines. This is not something you do recreationally. Uh, there are some people that recreationally use mushrooms and LSD, but ayahuasca is not a recreational drug. The character of ayahuasca is much more intense of a ego-revealing ego death process. I should say, first of all, this is not for everyone. While I do recommend it for anyone who's interested in trying it, it's certainly not for someone that has any sort of psychological condition like a bipolar disorder. It can cause a break. So if you if you have issues already, you should certainly consult someone before doing it. And most of the advice says you should not do it if you have any kind of serious condition. But if you are open to exploring what is in your subconscious, opening your mind to what it's like to turn your ego off for a while, then I have done nothing in my life that is as powerful as this. I've tried all those other psychedelics. They are in a lot of ways more recreational, even though they're still not really recreational drugs in my opinion. Like they're they're serious they're serious eye openers when you when you when you take the risk of doing a a psychedelic and ayahuasca has this particular character of being quite dark lets you strip away the ego and see yourself in ways that you probably never intended to see yourself which is you know kind of like seeing yourself with with all of the guards down it is fast track to path to a much more examined life in a very short amount of time just a little bit about the experience it's if you can find a genuine experience, which we feel lucky that we, we got one. We were in a very small group. It was a it was a very legit shaman who had, you know, was a, I think a fifth generation shaman. It's become popular enough in places like Peru that they have, you know, one day ayahuasca retreats and, and, and things like this. But 
I don't see how any of that could be valuable. It's a, a pretty intense, fairly solitary experience where you really want a good shaman. You want a, a genuine experience. We had to search to try to find a good shaman. You don't necessarily want one that has a website or certainly not one that has a website in English. We actually found one that had a very crappy, I think, Facebook page all in Spanish. And we found someone that spoke, we speak, you know, very marginal Spanish. So we, we found someone that we know that spoke Spanish. We, we called them and talked to them on the phone and eventually had to wire money to a Western Union in, uh, in Ecuador. So it was definitely a leap of faith, you know, to, to get a genuine experience. We, we, found a, we also found a girl who posted a YouTube video who had gone to the shaman and she posted a very good review of her experience. And we reached out to her and she responded to us and, you know, she said he was, you know, totally legit. And so it, it's, a, it's a hard process to, to evaluate and find a good place to do this. But it is worth the effort. It's like no experience that I've ever had. And I, I don't probably imagine I'll have something this interesting ever happen again. We went down to Ecuador. We did a 10-day experience where we did ayahuasca about every other night. And it's a full formal ceremony and everything. I was very skeptical of the shaman process. I'm not of a religious bent. I believe in, you know, being a good person because it's the right thing to do, but I don't have any religious affiliations. For me, the shaman thing, before I had any experience with it, felt it could be a little phony. But as it turned out, the shaman is an amazing person. They, they, they do the, this medicine with you. The shaman over, over centuries have figured out that there's what's called DMT, and this is a psychoactive substance, but your body naturally breaks it down. So what happens is they have found other plants that they can mix with this ayahuasca vine. So the, it's a big vine that grows on, on trees in the Amazon. They, they take that, they break it up, and they boil it with other plants that have what's called an MAO inhibitor. And that inhibitor allows the DMT to stay present in your body for a certain amount of time. Now, the shaman are taking you on a journey. So with us, they knew they had five nights, like approximately every other night for 10 days. The minimum I would recommend is three days because you can have zero reaction to it like a light mushroom trip or something of the sort. If you don't have multiple days, you could go through all this effort and not really get much out of it. And to me, that would not be worth it. And it really wasn't until the third night that both Heidi and I had a very powerful experience. Had we done less than that, it probably wouldn't have happened. I think they're taking you on a journey with like he knew he had five nights with us. The first nights were kind of an introduction and it, it slowly brings you into the space the kind of headspace of what it requires to, to handle these uh, these experiences. You know, you're part of the process. If it's a good shaman, we, we were part of making the ayahuasca brew. You know, we were cutting up the, the different plants and everything and, and part of the process of boiling them. And uh, they cook all day. And what comes out is this oil-like sludge that you drink. It tastes terrible. I'll be perfectly upfront that vomiting is part of the process. They call it purging. And it really is an unbelievable experience because it sounds 
like something absolutely awful, and it is. I mean, obviously, anytime you have to throw up, it's a, it's a, one of the one of the worst human experiences, in my opinion. But it's tied to this mental unchaining of your ego that's going on. So you are you are going through these things in your head, and you're literally releasing demons. And when when you have these when you have these purging moments, you are physically getting rid of bad thoughts in your head. It's a very strange thing and it's hard to describe, but that's about the best I can do. While it is kind of terrifying knowing that's part of it, after the fact, you understand it and you kind of need it to happen because it's it's part of getting rid of bad thought patterns in your head. What the shaman does is take it with you. You know, our groups are very small. We, we only had, the whole time, it was five to 10 people at the most part of the ceremony, and that includes the shaman. And everybody has their own ceremony where, you know, there's all this ritual that goes on. And at first, I, I, you know, the first two nights, I was thinking, this is a little ridiculous because there's tobacco being blown on you and all these, all these things you imagine go on in a traditional Indian-style ceremony are all going on, especially when the two, first two nights when the medicine hadn't, wasn't giving me a deep effect and I was still fairly coherent, it didn't, uh, it was feeling a little ridiculous. And then the third night happened. So the first two nights were kind of on the edge of the Amazon in local, more easily accessible place where you would first go. And then the third night we go deep into the Amazon. So he drives us way out in these pickup trucks and then we hike way into the rainforest. It's deep jungle. It's all sorts of crazy sounding animals and you know amazing skies just not a light anywhere near you so you could just see these amazing skies at night and it was a really cool experience and it totally changed like the 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 physical walking deep into the rainforest is this kind of like stepping out of your normal way of living so you you get way out there and you've kind of had you know, a couple nights already to start processing things. You kind of start understanding where this is going. And then the third night, he just walloped us. He knows how to make it stronger. The brew that night, everybody who was involved in the ceremony had a very intense experience. Uh, I won't speak for Heidi, but effectively she felt like she died. And this is a fairly normal thing. I know this sounds extreme, but you can feel like you died in the experience and you get this but coming back from that, feel like you lived through something because you really feel like it's not like a dream. Like this is an intense experience where you are purging demons from deep within your, your brain. Heidi had this experience where she felt like she died and she was not going to come out of it. Now, of course, people don't die in the, the, the ceremony. It's, it's all going on in your head. But this is where you have to be of a fairly stable mind to be able to, to do this because you you know you can have a psychotic break if you are imbalanced already. Third night was was crazy intense and you know what happens is you effectively feel like you are seeing yourself the way other people see you for the first time. I had this uh, kind of intense visual. Some people have very visual experiences, other people just learn lessons. And I had this very visual experience of feeling like there was a, a camera um, watching me and I was watching myself through the camera. It was this kind of manifestation in my brain of like what I looked like to other people and what it was like to be friends with me and what it was like to have me as part of someone's life. 
And it, it opens your eyes to the way your ego looks to other people and, and the walls you put up. So I had dozens of insights about my life. It sounds trite to say that you, you know, you have a psychedelic experience and it changes your life, but they, they absolutely changed our life. One of Heidi's insights from, from the trip, which was we were both completely on the fence about having kids. And she came back absolutely knowing that she wanted to do it. And she did not feel that way before the trip. Now, it took me a little longer to, to get there because I didn't have the same insight, but that's an example of the power of, the, of these things. She was absolutely 100% changed mind on after, after the trip. And for me, I had realized through the experiences that there was a lot of roadblocks I was putting up for myself. And within, within two months of coming home, I found myself in an in a situation with an opportunity to do to do a TEDx talk, which is something that I had wanted to do, but I had all these reasons why it wasn't the right time always. After the experience, my mindset was completely changed about it. And I, I wouldn't be doing this podcast right now. I wouldn't have a kid. I all there all these things, you know, maybe maybe some of them would have come about in their own way, but they all came about very quickly after that trip, literally after the trip, because we just came back changed people. Now, we, we were doing it just for a life experiment. There's a whole story about how I got to that point. I'd known about it for a long time and then met someone when I was on a trip to Guatemala who was kind of this like evolved wise soul who was only about 20 years old. And he told me about his experience. It solidified me that it was just something I was going to do. And I presented it to Heidi, presented her with a couple documentaries on it. Surprisingly, she came back to me within a week and said, this is not something I'm willing to miss in my life. And so I struck while the iron's hot. We sat right down and started researching and found the shaman. That's what the about page is talking about. So I, what I tried to do in that about page is, because obviously this is a pretty intense, crazy experience that more and more people are now are doing. You can do it, you know, in the United States and in Europe now. Ask around, look around places like Reddit. You will find places that you can do it. It's not legal because this is a is a psychedelic compound. It is an illegal drug in the likes of the United States, but it is legal in other places and is regulated by, you know, some some sort of shaman organization, at least in at least in Ecuador. Anyway, it was a it was an amazing experience. I tried to summarize in that about page what I got out of the experience. And, you know, maybe it comes across a little too self-helpy because it is talking about kind of like ways that I changed my outlook on life, but uh, those were not found by reading any self-help book. They were they were found the hard way, but the fast way. You know, they kind of joke about things like ayahuasca as being 20 years of therapy in one night. <laughs> it was in a lot of ways. So that's kind of the Cliff Notes version, but it's highly recommended for anyone who has the desire and the guts to, to look beneath the surface. What's your background? Okay, so now that I just spent over 20 minutes talking about ayahuasca, I will cut it short and talk about myself for only a minute. See how clever that was? So it's really best to just check out my LinkedIn page. There's a bunch of things on there. I was an engineer in college. I went to Uni University of Illinois for engineering, and then I went to grad school at a, um, a joint Kellogg School of Business program with their engineering program. Worked for years in software, lived overseas for a few years um, selling software, then went on my own and started developing real estate primarily. Did a couple tech startups along the way too, but I've mostly been developing my own businesses for almost 20 years. 
And I've been working on becoming a writer for about the last decade. I've just been kind of writing on the side with no specific plan what to do with it. I've written entire books that got shelved. Apologies to the people that read those for me and the likes of my friend Jay, who had to endure early copies of that. I'm sure the writing was horrifying. If he saw my stuff today, he'd see that I used the word that a lot less. But I was kind of gearing up towards something, and then when I got the opportunity to do the TEDx talk, I did it. And um, that just kind of started me on a path towards this, because the feedback was great. It helped me start to understand what I wanted to say. And really, as I started writing, I started just realizing that you just and I said this in the last episode, but you really just don't know what you think until you try to write it down. I started writing things down for years and I look back at those things and, and just realize how scattered my thinking was and unprincipled and, you know, it's it's not perfect. Like, I don't think you ever hit, you know, unless you're Christopher Hitchens, you don't hit a perfect ability to articulate your ideas and why you believe what you believe until you've really tried to write it down. Because until you write it down and look back at it and read it and decide if it makes sense, you find whole, so many holes in your thinking. So I'm sure there are people who more naturally have less holes, but I'm not sure that's the case. I think you really have to think and write a lot. And so I've done that a lot for the last 10 years. And after the doing the TEDx talk, I deciding that I wanted to build an audience first. So I've got lots of really, I think, interesting book ideas and I've got a movie script that I fully developed, kind of themed similar to what the podcast is about. That's a complete project, but I decided that I wanted to build an audience first and, and see if the things I was talking about, people wanted to hear about. That's why I started the podcast and it took me two years to arrive at the format of this fiction meets nonfiction kind of Twilight Zone-ish themed things. I'm happy with the way it's turned out and I hope it finds an audience. And if it does, I've got lots of other stuff to put out. That, that's a highlight. There's, there's more probably on my LinkedIn page if you're really interested in that kind of thing. But my other thing is that I'm, I'm late in life to having a kid and it's been an awesome experience. I feel like I'm much more engaged with, with her because of the fact that I, I had her later in life because I, I think I wasn't ready for it earlier than that. I'm sure you probably figure it out, but for me, I'm grateful that I was able to get the chance later in life. She's she's amazing and has changed my, my life more than anything. Okay, why should I care about philosophy and psychology? They seem impractical. So I actually just wrote a section on the website about this. I'll put a link to it. Essentially, there's three pillars to the platform, philosophy, psychology, and practice. It's just something that's developed out of me doing a lot of writing, realizing that there are these great pools of information out there, of philosophy and psychology, that I don't think most people tap. You get some of it by looking at regular self-help. And I don't have a problem with self-help. I like self-help. But I get more out of philosophy and psychology if I try to apply it. So I can learn, say, about a psych psychological, like a cognitive bias like say confirmation bias, something simple. To me, that's way, it's way more powerful to learn about this natural human bias that we have and then try to recognize how I do it, how I'm subject to it in my life. So that's the practice component. Like, so it's one thing to read about somewhat, something about something Aristotle said or some psychological thing like a cognitive bias. And then it's another thing to force yourself to change. 
because it's one, you know, when, when I read things like self-help, you know, it usually tends to make things sound simple, a bullet list of 10 things to do. I just don't think that's how people change. So to me, I've developed this thing that I call PPP, philosophy, psychology, and practice. What I'm trying to do with the podcast is bake a little bit of each of those into each episode so that it's kind of getting at the these root ways to think about your mind, life, and soul, as I call it, which is kind of like the bigger picture beyond what's in your mind and how you live your life. So that's what I'm trying to do with the platform. And it's all practical philosophy and practical psychology. I try not to talk about things that don't have a practical usage. Like if, if there's philosophy and psychology in an episode, it's because I think you can learn from, you know, going back to the example, you can learn from the fact that we tend to have these types of biases. By just understanding these things, I think you can become better at avoiding the traps. So that's why I think um, it's worthwhile to care about philosophy and psychology if you are doing it from a practical perspective and plan to change things. So I'll put a link to the details that I wrote up on the website from this question. Are you a philosopher? No. And yes, and maybe. If that sounds like a sufficiently ambiguous and philosophical answer, that's because it's supposed to be. So you could probably guess I'm going to end this answer with more questions. But first off, no, I'm definitely not an academic philosopher of the sort that I cite all the time in the podcast and whose work has created most of society as we know it. I mean, these guys are awesome and it's a difficult, admirable path that they forge. I couldn't do what a professional academic philosopher does. I could go and get the education and, and probably have a decent grasp of the fundamentals, but it, that's not my skill or my interest. And the same goes to all the researchers and scientists out there creating an amazing body of work that we can attempt to learn from. Even the bad science is fun. I'm, uh, But I'm definitely not a psychologist either, obviously. I'm, I'm just kind of a philosophy and psychology fanboy. I always attempt to give proper credit and ultimately I just hope to make psychology and philosophy a little more accessible through story and hope that people take that to the practice level and try to do something about it and integrate it into their life. So I have the utmost respect for philosophy and I don't agree with Stephen Hawking who says that philosophy is dead. I think that it's challenged by both evolving academic circumstances and the, this meme-driven pop culture that we live in. So philosophy started as the most practical and important of all fields. In fact, it's the root of everything you know and benefit from, medicine, science, but now doesn't have nearly the street cred it once did. It's seen as overthinking and big words dissecting other big words to death. And to be fair to contemporary philosophers, this is the path that the field seems to necessarily have needed to go. But the average philosophical work now, to me, is, is so esoteric sounding to read that the average reader is, you know, almost completely useless to try to approach it. Like reading Finnegan's Wake after not sleeping for a week, as if it wasn't bizarre enough if you're fully rested to try to read it. So to keep it confusing, let me move on to my second answer to the same question. So yes, I am a philosopher in the fact that I create new ideas and experiment with them in order to try to make the world, at least my own world, and hopefully, maybe to a few others, a better place. 
So I have Google Docs and Evernote files with literally hundreds of story ideas that I conjure up from my imagination and influences in my life. So if even half of them are actually garbage upon deeper inspection, which they probably are, I still have way more ideas than I could ever produce in a lifetime. So I really have to have a system for deciding what should get created. Now, I'm not bragging here. I, I feel everyone has the potential for, it, for this kind of idea database. I just think many don't act on the impulse to build it. There are lots of great quotes from great thinkers on why more people should try to philosophize and attempt to live and examine life. But I'll just pick one from Alan Watts, who is a brilliant thinker. He said it like this, but anyone who thinks at all must be a philosopher, a good one or a bad one, because it's impossible to think without premises, without basic, and in this sense, metaphysical assumptions about what is sensible, what is the good life, what is beauty, and what is pleasure. To hold such assumptions, consciously or unconsciously, is to philosophize. The self-styled practical man of affairs who poo-poos philosophy as a lot of windy notions is himself a pragmatist or a positivist and a bad one at that since he's given no thought to his position. So I think he's right. The, the greatest thinkers from the heyday of Western philosophy weren't technically philosophers either. All this started in this way. I, I realized the positions that I held about what I believe and why were tenuous. So think about it. what's a position you hold dearly and maybe you know, you post about on social media. Do you really know why you hold that position? Could you defend it down to its brass tacks with facts and not just regurgitate one of the handy but faulty narratives floating around? Do you understand why you do this or do you know that you do it? So the original goal of philosophy was to answer big questions of life. What am I supposed to do? Why am I here? And to distill information down to usable and practical things. So if I'm one at all, that's the kind of philosopher I am. Philosophy light, less confusing, but more usable. I love the work of philosophers, and their endeavor is still, to me, the most important thing there is. Deep inquiry spawns everything and has spawned all of the intellectual pursuits that we have. My, my aim is to spread the best ideas and uh, the best deep questions. And if I can, build my own practical life philosophy framework off the shoulders of all these giants leveraging my own journey of life experiences and thinking, of course. I'll go so far as to call myself a thinker, or maybe I'll borrow the Samuel Butler line who referred to himself as a philosophic writer. But I still have a long, long way to go as a writer and a thinker and as a human. But that's why I'm trying to do this with the podcast. Throwing your thoughts on paper and then into the world is the only way to figure out what needs fixing about your mindset and your mental skill set. So besides loving doing this, writing each season is like a huge puzzle where I, I literally never know if I'm going to find every piece. And that's ultimately why I keep doing it, to see if I can get more people thinking differently, creatively, critically, all while keeping emotion in check. Or even better, leveraging the neurophysiological power of emotion into better decisions and more rational risk taking. So if I can do this and still find it fun, then it's all worth it. My personal philosophy would be a patchwork quilt of philosophies adapted and riffed on from many schools of thought to create this platform that I call Evolve Faster, which has these three pillars, mind, life, and soul. And these are the, the three themes of the first three seasons, respectively. Consider it to be all of my cornerstone content. So that part 
of the quilt might look like this. I'm primarily a stoic when it comes to managing my emotions, although I do like the approach of Buddhism in this way. I'm an agnostic humanist when it comes to my spiritual outlook on life, existentialist when it comes to looking at that nagging, what am I supposed to do question every day. In other words, I feel strongly we have to create our own purpose and continue to do so every day. Overarching worldview would be as a, as a free thinker, which itself is, isn't really a school of philosophy so much as an outlook on life. I also think purposeful psychological debiasing and introspection are critical to continuing to find ways to use my mind better. So I pick and choose philosophies that mesh with the experiential outlook that I've developed in life, which for me is the only thing that makes sense to do. I tie all this together by doing experiments myself. Thought experiments, life experiments, emotional intelligence experiments. This is what I call that practice, that third P of evolving faster. So that's the, that's the foundation, philosophy, psychology, and practice. On to the last confusing answer. I don't know if I'm a philosopher. The better question is, are you a philosopher? If you think in an attempt to grow your worldview, develop better questions and learn to live better than you are, Ultimately, the Evolve Faster podcast hopes to prove that you need to be a philosopher and a psychologist and a practical practitioner of both. I guess just like judge, jury, and executioner. So I'm not here to tell you what to think. I can't do that. I'm just here to hopefully help you help yourself learn to think, live, and evolve better. Okay, why do you do this and why these topics? So first, I'll try not to take offense at this question. <laughs> I'm a, a mental hedonist, so if you know about hedonism, it's theory of happiness that states conversation and reading and doing mentally stimulating activities is the path to happiness and the point of life. So I definitely think that that's me. I get the most value out of things in life, you know, besi besides spending time with my daughter and things like that and playing music and all those kind of lifestyle things. I definitely get the most out of life when I'm investing in in learning and developing and creating things. So why these topics? Uh, I've explained the kind of mind, life, soul pillars, and you know, these are mostly my personal musings on challenges of face being alive and being human, and also the parts of the news and technological future stuff that I feel like people aren't addressing. I, I almost feel like stuff is coming out so fast now we're on this almost exponential curve around things like artificial intelligence and synthetic biology and genomics that I feel like there's almost not time for anyone to even catch up. I mean, if you ask your average politician their views on a lot of these things, I think they don't even have views on them. There was these famous Facebook hearings recently where, you know, you had these senators asking questions and it was clear they had, they just had no idea. They didn't even understand Facebook. So, how are they supposed to understand things like synthetic biology and artificial intelligence when they're dealing with regular policy and human issues every day? They can't possibly be caught up to what's going on in th these high-tech sciences. And this stuff is advancing fast, and it, it's going to very, very quickly have serious societal and dem democracy impacts that I just think we're not talking about. So so that, that's why the themes a lot of times tend to be these speculative fiction topics because I just think we need to talk about them more. Are we asking the right questions? I don't think we are a lot of the time, at least for, not for, for my needs. And that's why I cover the topics that I cover. 
So ultimately, why do I do it though? I've just come to believe, and I kind of hinted at this in the last question, that the most important thing each of us can do in a world where our actions and lives can feel sort of meaningless and hopeless is to find some art, and I'm using that term generically, that you think matters and make it, whatever the cost. So if you if you weave wicker baskets in a small village in Central America and you think those baskets make the world a little bit better, then weave them. You know, if you're a lawyer in New York City and you see your job as a work of art that matters, then paint that picture. And this work that I'm doing with this podcast is so far the only thing I've stumbled upon in my work and now personal life, you know, besides family, that has that quality for me, that feels to me like something I have to do because at least to me, it's making the world a little bit better. And maybe it's just making my world better because I'm exploring ideas that I think matter. But I'm hoping that it translates to meaning for other people as well. I also need to be creating. And it's not just about exploring ideas, but it's about acting on those ideas, whether it's acting on creating music or acting on creating writing and creating podcasts like I'm doing now. I'm most happy when I feel like I created something. I started kind of when I did the the, the TEDx talk, one of the things I, I kind of posed at the end was like, what are you going to do with the rest of your days? It's something that's been asked by many philosophers and, and Viktor Frankl existentialism, like looking back from your deathbed, what what do you want to see? <laughs> it's a simple question. Like when when I look back now, if I, if, I, if I say I was to hop on my deathbed tomorrow, I would look back at the things I created. And of course, family is, is a legacy. So for me, created this human and and she's the most important thing. But besides that, career, which is, you know, a big part, half of most people's lives, what do you want? And it doesn't even have to be considered a career pursuit, but just what do you want to look back and say you, you've done? And I asked that question in the TED Talk, and I, I had to ask myself that question. To me, this is something that I've come up with that means something to me. So if I'm not creating something every day and using my mind creatively in, in some way to make even some part of my life or other people's even just a little better, then it leaves me feeling kind of restless. And to me, that's the kind of brand of existentialism that drives me. So I give up a lot to create. I, I don't, you know, for example, I talked in the in the, the, the TED talk about how I pulled the plug on, on TV. And it's not that I don't watch anything. I still watch things occasionally, but it's not a daily part of my life anymore. And that was a conscious choice that, that I feel the desire to watch things sometimes. And and spend off time kind of not doing anything, but I realize that the next day I'll regret it because I'll look back and think I could have worked on something creative that would have meant something more to me. So to me, it's it's a balance and you have to strike a balance that works for you. I, I give up a lot to create. It pays me back in spades and, and a sort of mental well-being that for me seems to be kind of otherwise unattainable, at least in my kind of work life. Yeah, and my personal life is is a blurred line for sure. Having been on my own entrepreneur for 20 years, like, you know, your your work lifeline blurs a lot. I have Heidi and Stella, my friends and families and my music. I'm in a band and, you know, I love playing guitar and, and all that. Because my work personal life has been blurred for two decades, I don't draw much distinction between the two anymore. Hopefully that explains why I do this, why these topics and and why this matters, at least to me. Were there aha moments or key turning points that got the podcast to where it is? I talked about quite a bit of this in the last one, so I won't dwell too much. A couple of things would be, you know, the signatures of the show, which would be 
The fiction, of course. The nonfiction, which I call the proofs. The 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 big driving question was 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 critical, and that that was early. I I, I pretty much designed the whole first season around a big set of big questions of life. So that was a that was kind of a root discovery that led towards the the format. The three sentence teaser, which is when you start an episode, it's this this first three sentence thing that kind of sums up the whole thrust of the episode. That became really important to understanding building the metaphor for the episode and you know coming up with something that you could summarize in three sentences and so yeah, so those are those are some of the 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 kind of signatures of the show that um, led to important moments as it as it developed and you know all together and, that, and then of course there's some sort of takeaway and that that was important to me too that these sort of be not just cautionary tales about where society is heading but also the upside of that like the kind of takeaways that you can learn from these things that even if it seems like something that's not taking society in the right, right direction maybe it's actually not so bad Th- those all those things together kind of create the uh the episodes and the fiction gives me a chance to get creative within the within looking at these ideas and create dialogues about these things that force me to really think through the issue. And usually at the end of the episode, I often listen back to it and I can hardly even pick out what my opinion is. Uh, and that's probably because I, I forced myself to to look at it from different sides that I wouldn't have if I hadn't written the episode. And a good example of that would be episode EF4. I went into writing that one knowing what I wanted the twist to be and having a pretty solid opinion on what I would say about it. And then realized through the dialogue and, and how it folded out that I didn't really think I had as strong of an opinion at the end of it. And I don't think that listening to the episode, it comes across as obvious what my opinion is. And that's a good thing. What are your favorite books, movies? This question actually made me, I started jotting things down and made me kind of want to start a Evolve Faster book club page. So maybe when I get some time, I'll do that. Yeah, just a few, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big Vonnegut fan. You can tell by the dedications of the podcast who I like. And Cat's Cradle is one of my favorite books. Kind of fun, clever category. I love pretty much any Vonnegut book. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the book Confederacy of Dunces. I'm a big New Orleans fan. It's just one of the funniest, most disturbing, but amazingly great books. Catch-22, another one of my favorites. I love sci-fi and fantasy. Um, obviously, uh, Asimov's foundation was referenced in one of the episodes and Game of Thrones, and I've read those books and Lord of the Rings. And I used to really be a big fiction fan, so I've, there's lots of fiction books that I love. And in the nonfiction, I love books like uh, Sapiens and Homo Deo. Obviously, I love philosophy. Uh, the Tao Te Ching is one of my, my favorite books. Uh, I love reading Seneca and that's the that that's the kind of basic themes of of what I've read throughout my life. Maybe I'll make something interesting with a uh, kind of a book page. Well, what do you love and hate about the podcast? In the love category, I love most of it. I mean, specifically, I love coming up with the ideas over months of time and then narrowing the list and coming up with these high level cohesive narratives that then play out over a whole season, but then I have to interconnect them, but keep them independent. The first drafts are fun, but they're usually 
not even close. Then after a couple of rewrites, it's fun to listen to them in sequence and figure out what's wrong. So I'll try to get the whole season into, you know, say a second or third draft and then listen to the whole season. And that's when you really start to see which ones, like I've had to drop entire episodes at that point, realizing that even though I had interconnected, it just wasn't gonna work. As I've said, it's a labor of love. In some ways I'd, I'd do it for free, but there's a limit to that. So I have a family, I have to support a lot of things and I hope to make it valuable enough that it turns into something that I can continue doing. The creativity is what I love the most. I love the creation. I love uh, I love creating the artwork for the for the episodes and finding the imagery and you know doing the the edits to it and making it, it look cool and fit the themes and the writing and the concept of the se seasons and the brainstorming Skype calls with Antonio where he'll shoot holes in my ideas and I try to convince him he's missing something and rewriting the thing for the third or fourth time and then it finally becomes clear what's what's wrong and what's what needs to be done. It's this kind of puzzle long form creativity thing that I, I love the most. It's funny, I can remember most of the exact places where I was every time we would get into the deep weeds about fixing one of these specific episodes. When they were in that pretty good, but we can make a great moment for the EF6 episode, which turned out to be my least favorite in the end, but at the time it was, it became like the model for the season about how it would work. I, I specifically remember talking to Antonio in the car with Stella in the back seat, just arguing because we were both frustrated, just couldn't get it where we wanted to be. For the previous episode to that one, EF5, I was in Bali on our trip in this terrible condo going, I was on the phone with Antonio for about an hour, bouncing idea after idea off him and l listening to his feedback and ideas. And then it just finally became so clear that the theme needed to be around the sculptor and that created the whole second story. And I mean, I, I distinctly remember being in that, in that condo, it was, it was terrible, but I'll tell that story later, probably the full thing. But uh, I was in Thailand on this island when I finally figured out one of the most important parts in EF 13. Um, so it's really funny. Like I, I it's, uh, it's almost like when you have a memory of a certain song. Songs smells seem to have that that quality where you can remember specifically the first time you smelled or heard a smelled something or heard a song. It's the same thing with these episodes. So they clearly are emotional moments in my life. I call them aha moments, but really it's just because I've been working on it so long that these patterns become clear. It's usually I've I've felt like I was beating my head against the wall in those cases and then then all of a sudden it's just clear and it's this kind of like oh you know the everything clears and you know the the sun comes out and it's it's creative creativity is this long you know treacherous journey and you just have to stick with it if you want it to pay off you know kind of like travel you have to get with travel you have to stick with it and go deep if you want it to really pay off otherwise it can just feel surface level and you never really get there with what you're trying to accomplish so what do I hate about the podcast? I hate asking for support. You know, I, I obviously have to have to do that. Right now that's the that's the path. I have other things planned to, you know, products to sell and so forth, but you know, I, I want to build the podcast into something that is self-supporting. I don't like asking for support. It's not uh, something I've ever done before. I've been an entrepreneur for 20 years, so I'm used to building things and then asking for people to pay for them. I'm used to building things in the hope that they turn out and they don't always. But the online content model is 
it's just turned on its head and I wish people would understand it. I, I get it. I listen to free content too. Um, I, I do pay for the content that I really like though. And, you know, I understand why people don't do it. I just think it's something that I wish people could stop and think about more what they're trading for free and what they're, what they're giving up. I just feel like we've built this horrible structure around free products, YouTube and Gmail and Facebook, which are just not free at all. And that's kind of led this, you know, been along the same path of blogs and now podcasts and free content creators just have to deal, deal with this advertising shit show that's left behind. If you go watch something now, like I'm on, I've been unplugged. I, I was a cord cutter for years now. And if I watch something on regular TV now, I can't even believe how much ads there and how awful they are. And I think if you watch it all the time, you don't realize it. It's kind of like you you step away from something and then step back into a, a one-hour time block that is now 20 full minutes of ads, and the ads just seem so awful. So in this, now, now YouTube's the same. You know, you can't watch a YouTube video without it being all junked up with ads, and that's just what you get. Anyway, what else do I hate? I, I don't like being at the computer all the time. I don't know how to fix that. I... I'm, I'm trying to work on it, you know, I kind of have to be at the computer a lot to do all the pieces. So if I could get rid of some of the pieces, if I was able to take some of those off my plate, that would help. The writing piece, I don't still don't know a better way to put my ideas on a page. I don't think as well just speaking into like a recorder, for example. There's just something like putting a pen to paper putting your fingers to the keys is where I'm able to formulate my ideas. So maybe I can change that because I don't like being at the computer and hunched over a computer as much as I have to be. Maybe I'm just saying this at the moment because I'm at the end of winter and I've been pent up and we're considering a move to multiple places, at least part of the year, Colorado, Costa Rica, places that have a lot more to do outside. And if I could balance more outside stuff with the computer work, I'd probably feel a lot better about it. But, you know, deep flow for me does come from this extended periods of creativity. So there is the good with the bad, and I just have to come up with better ways to balance. So if anyone has ideas, please send them my way. And, you know, I guess I, in a way, I hate the rewrites. Uh, I, I do and I don't. Of course, th this is where the good stuff comes out. But they're, they're, it's a double-edged sword. They're very hard, but they're very rewarding and necessary. So they're a huge time-consuming battle of will to you know, insist that the product gets to the point of being good enough. I'll sometimes listen to an episode a dozen times before I can figure out what's wrong with it. I'm going to try more detailed outlines in the next season to see if I can shorten the loop. So that, so I'd like the rewrites not to be quite as painful as they are today. What's the hardest part? Well, time, of course. You know, I, I want to spend as much time with my daughter as I can. I have other businesses with Heidi in, in real estate. I've gotten rid of all the tech startups that I've done. And the thing that most people don't realize about businesses is how long it can take to get rid of them. <laughs> I had an email that I sent to a friend of mine who was starting her first business and she had asked me a lot of questions because she knew I'd started a lot of things. And I said, the one thing you gotta consider is that once you start something on your own, it's not like you can just quit it. You know, you have contracts, you start things. And so you have to really consider when you start something, how long it's gonna take you to get out of it. So I'm still extricating myself from 
things I started a decade ago. So I'm much more selective about what I do with my time now. I'd like most of my time to be spent on this if I can. Time is tough. Calling things done, I've talked about this before, but um, this has always been a challenge for me, but having a podcast schedule means that I have to finish things. So that's, it's been really good. I, I'm, I'm much more happy with the fact that I can release something and just say, as good as it's gonna get, I don't have more time. So uh, it's hard to continue producing content while I'm still becoming a better writer. If I look at what I wrote a decade ago, I, I know I've come a long way and I'll probably look back in a decade and say the same, but I think, I'll, I think it'll be less extreme with every year. For me, re releasing control is always hard. It's been a good relationship with Antonio to be able to release some more control to him. Consistency is, is hard. You know, when I was traveling around the world for season one, it was really hard to ever have a consistent porting space or workspace or any of that. So I'm still kind of in a, a transition. So hopefully that will get easier with time. My word of the year, Heidi and I decided to pick words of the year this year, and mine is consistency. I'm not usually my strong suit. I'm, I'm a creator and I like building things. I usually don't like operating them, but this podcast is different because it's constant creation. I have so many ideas that I want to develop that even though there is a lot of grind of the operation, I feel like with enough support, I'm going to be able to build them all. And it feels more like constant creation instead of operations. So I'm going to wrap this up. You probably noticed I skipped a couple questions. Some of them went way longer than I expected. Hopefully they went longer because they were interesting to me, which means maybe they're interesting to you. I had lots of other great questions and maybe I'll just do a, another episode later. So I'm going to punt on these last couple, but so I asked you at the beginning of this episode to ponder what is the most important thing you've learned through all the experiences of your life, the key experiences, and how often do you reflect on those lessons toward improving how you live? I hope you'll let me know in the comments or on social media or what you came up with about your own journey. So the answer for me, you might've surmised is that it's become more and more clear to me that unique and powerful experiences like the ayahuasca experience, like the isolation retreats that I do, like the, the podcast, like this creative risk that I'm taking with this podcast, they expose the fictions that we create in our lives to kind of tell ourselves stories. It exposes them for being just that, fiction. The stories we tell mask the truth and make our lives comfortable, sometimes too comfortable, and it kind of prevents you from pushing your boundaries. For me, it took a long time for me to kind of see that I was in a bubble, that a lot of Western society, I think, creates bubbles that we live in. American culture has lots of, of different layers of bubbles. And I grew up immersed in one of those and it wasn't, it wasn't bad, it was a good way to live. But I saw that it wasn't for me, I, I, I wanted to, see beyond that and for me it was a gradual way too gradual in my opinion kind of revealing of this matrix that i was in that changed how i began to see the world and one of the first times that happened was when in college got the opportunity to do an exchange program for a summer in europe and i kind of opened my eyes to like their culture is not even that different than the western culture in america but i saw that things were different and it was kind of the first time that I was had a, an eye-opening experience of, hey, things aren't exactly as cut and dry and white bread as I, as I thought they were. Each experience kind of creates new insight, which leads to the next experience. And you, you try to just shorten the loop each time. Now I finally feel like I'm much more in control 
all the story of my life. It's my narrative and I control the narrative. It's under my control regardless of who thinks what of me and why. So how about you? Are you creating the story of your life or are you letting someone else write it for you? And what would happen if you made a point to seek a change to your own narrative? I mean, it doesn't have to be going to Guatemala for three weeks or going to do ayahuasca. But what if you quit the job, took the job, started the company, shut it down, started the relationship, ended it? The list of doors you could open or close to take your life in a different direction, change the narrative, bring it back under your control is probably fairly endless. So I'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.